Thank you, Kent and Barbara, for our music tonight. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream for our Sunday evening service. We've been going through the book of Hosea. So we're in Hosea chapter 3 tonight. Hosea chapter 3, you can find that it's the first of the minor prophets. This is right after the book of Daniel in your Old Testament. Hosea is a unique book. And uh, as we go through it, it's a long book, as I uh, said, 14 chapters uh, makes it equal to the longest book in, of the Minor Prophets. And the chapter that we're looking at right now is the shortest chapter, not only in the book, but the shortest one in all the Minor Prophets. Uh, therefore, I suppose, except for some Psalms, uh, the shortest one. Uh, the last chapter of the Bible, uh, Malachi uh, chapter 4, has six verses, so <laughs> it's competing. But five verses is all we have here. And uh, it really is a, a unique chapter. Dr. Ironside called it the Romans chapter 11 of the Old Testament. That is, there you have Israel blessed and restored in the end times in Romans 11. And that's what we have here in these verses also. Charles Lee Feinberg, a great Jewish scholar with the Lord now, uh, said this, Though the third chapter of Hosea consists of but 81 words, in the Hebrew uh, language, it rightfully takes its place among the greatest prophetic announcements in the whole revelation of God. That's really something to say about what's being said here about, about Israel. So we'll look at it. Remember, remember these things uh, about the book of Hosea. In chapter 1, we were introduced to the man Hosea who lived uh, you know, in the 700s B.C. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel. And uh, he was commanded to marry a girl named Gomer uh, and was told up front that she will not be faithful to you. And so he did that for reasons that God knew. And so in chapter 2, well, in chapter 1, you have, you have uh, this story of Gomer and, and Hosea and the children that they have. And then in chapter 2, a long chapter about Israel and how God is using these things as an illustration to what he's going to do with Israel and how unfaithful Israel had been to him. And then in, in chapter 3, we have a little bit of both. That is, three verses that apply to Hosea and Gomer, and then two verses, great verses, that apply to God and Israel. So you remember that... Uh, uh, she had become unfaithful, that is, Gomer had become unfaithful, and now Hosea has a command from God to go get her and bring her back and uh, do the right thing by her. So he's going to do that. And then in, in uh, verses 4 and 5, you have uh, the, these promises given to Israel. Look back at, at chapter 2 and verse just 16 and 17 of, of chapter 2. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master, for I will take uh, from her mouth the name of the Baals. In other words, I'm going to bring you back to myself, God says to Israel. That's what's happening uh, to Gomer also. Chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in their affliction, they will diligently seek me. 
And so all through this book, God is going to be talking about this restoration, how he's going to bring Israel back. And he's telling Hosea, you go get your bride and bring her back too. So that's what we're going to see in these verses. So you have a, a short outline there, well, with some uh, thoughts after each point. You can follow me along on that outline. In the first three verses, we have this picture then of Hosea and Gomer. Let me read these to you. Then the Lord said to me, Hosea, of course, writing, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who took to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and for one and a half homers of, of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. Thus, I will also be toward you. Now, verses 4 and 5 shifts to more to God and Israel. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return Seek the Lord their God and David their king and fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Interesting verses, aren't they? You remember in chapter 1 and verse 2, uh, he took Gomer to his wife. They had a boy named Jezreel, and Jezreel means to cast away. And then they had a girl named Lolurama, which means no mercy. Then they had another boy named Lo-Amai, which means not my people. And so even their children were signs uh, of what was going to happen to them, but also what God was going to do with Israel. Well, let's look at, uh, at what he says to, to Hosea here in these uh, first three verses. Notice I have three thoughts here in the verses. There's a love displayed, and then there's a price paid and a time waited. All of these are for a reason. So this love displayed, it's interesting that in verse 1, the word love appears four times. Uh, a couple of those times uh, because of her adultery and love for other people. But uh, Gomer, or excuse me, Hosea is commanded, go love a woman, love again, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover. In other words, your wife is unfaithful to you and has gone out with other men, committed adultery with them, but I want you as a husband to love her and go get her and bring her back. Now, that's a hard thing. That, that's hard for anyone who has to be in that kind of a, of a situation, and yet there it is. I think when in the New Testament, when God uh, tells wives to submit to their husbands and turns around and says, husbands, love your wives, uh, that to the head of the home, to the leader of the house. There ought to be a love that will oversee everything else, a love that will always be there and all abiding. And after all, what, what kind of vows do we take at the marriage altar, right, uh, to always love and always be that way? Well, here's the, the really the ultimate test. Now, uh, you know, we could put a footnote in here and remember again that adultery in the Old Testament 
had three choices, or a husband had three choices if it was a wife and vice versa also. One is she could be punished by being put to death. It was the death penalty for doing this. And uh, so Leviticus uh, chapter 20 describes those kinds of things. That could happen. But we're also told then uh, in Deuteronomy 24 that God, through Moses, allowed for a divorce in such a situation uh, rather than the death penalty. And so a divorce could happen for uh, adultery, for unfaithfulness. And then we find out of practice in the Old Testament that there was a third option, and that is forgiveness. And forgive them and bring them back and have them restored. After all, that's what happened with David and Bathsheba, right? Uh, there was a forgiveness there for, for their sin, and, the, and neither one of them were put to death. So, and, and by the way, remarriage, if you desert and you're unfaithful and then you marry that person, then remarriage between the original two is not a possibility. Uh, God makes that plain and Moses makes that plain. And the New Testament also, Jesus made that plain. So, hard thing to do here. Uh, you know, God said it would be this way. I, I, this, is, this is the life that I wanted you to experience. Now you do the hardest thing, and that is you go get her and you forgive her and you bring her back, and here's how you're supposed to handle it. So that's pretty tough. Now, in the middle of that verse, though, you see the two words, just like. Well, up front here, God kind of says, here's why I want you to do this, because because what Gomer has been to you is just like what Israel has been to me. That's what he's saying. So he says, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. I mean, I've had to have patience with them. They have been unfaithful to me since I brought them out of Egypt. And all the way through uh, their time in the land of Israel, one time after another, they keep doing these things. They look to other gods. And notice, they love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Do you like raisin cakes? I don't know if I do or not because I'm not sure what they mean by these. I like raisin bread and things like that. But what, what is meant here by it? What is meant is a worship of the idols in the land of Israel. As a matter of fact, I read to you chapter 2 and verse 17, and notice at the end of that, I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals. And so part of the eating of these raisin cakes, were, it was a part of a meal in a very perverse, sexually oriented way of worshiping the idols. And this was a plague in the nation of Israel from the beginning. As a matter of fact, th this type of worship goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, where you have Nimrod's wife, Samarimus, uh, having these kinds of, of relationships with Tammuz, it was a mother-son type of, of immoral worship. And this, was, this began there. And then it was in Phoenicia that you have Baal Ashereth worship. So we see the word Baal all throughout the Old Testament and the Ashereth poles, the, the, the statues and things. And they would go up to the mountains under every green tree and so forth. And that's where they would do these things. And, and it was a terrible plague to the nation of Judah and Israel all of these years. And 
of course, part of it was the feasting and part of it was the ceremonies and the rituals that they went through. So let me read, for example, I was going to say down in Egypt, later when, when uh, Jeremiah will preach to the southern nation, that is Judah, he'll be taken down to Egypt against his will. And when he's down there, he will see the children of Israel doing this in Egypt where their gods are called Isis and Horus. In other words, a mother-son worship there. In Rome, by the way, this is called Venus and Cupid. Uh, so, uh, you know, that little guy we think is so cute wasn't so cute uh, in, in these historical things. But Jeremiah 7, 18 says it this way, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the, woman, the women need uh, bread, need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. The queen of heaven, they believe, that, and that's why Venus later is signified as the queen of heaven, the star of heaven. Uh, she, they believe she came to the earth and then they worship her as Ashtoreth and so forth. And in Jeremiah 44, 19, the women also said, when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? Here is their worship and their idolatry. But notice the baking of cakes. I, could put this, I guess I should put this footnote in there, that these are the kinds of things that often people look at and say, we shouldn't do anything that has anything to do with that. But you know what? Sometimes we bake cakes too. As a matter of fact, we bake birthday cakes. There are some people that think birthday cakes should never been done, never been done, done, done do whatever, by Christians. <laughs> because... Be, because they may be connected with this kind of worship way back in ancient history, so don't ever have a birthday cake. Same with Christmas trees, same with you know, various things like that. I don't think so. I think once our culture drops those connections with those kinds of things, it's not there. But just saying, that's where some of this kind of thought comes from. But here they were, God's people, going up to every high mountain and doing this kind of stuff with the idols in a pagan, perverted type of way. And God is saying, my people are doing the same thing to me that your wife is doing to you. That's, that's what's being said here. You kind of get the, get the drift that way, right? Well, then notice, secondly, so I bought her. Because he said, uh, go again, you know, and love her and bring her back. So I bought her for myself, number one, for 15 shekels of silver, and number two, uh, one and one-half homers of barley. Someone has noticed, it's not hard to notice, that what was the price for Jesus that Judas got? 30 pieces of silver. What's the price here? 15 pieces. 30 pieces of silver is the price of a wounded slave that is no longer any good. So the price for a wounded slave was 30 pieces of silver. If you're if your bull had charged somebody and cut him up with their horns, then he's no good anymore, so you have to pay 30 pieces of silver. She was only worth 15 pieces. And not only that, someone noticed uh, that the, the, the price of the barley is the price of animal food. 
This is what you would buy to give to your horse. This is what you'd buy to give to your mule. So the, the, the picture here is she's not worth much. She has sunk so low in her sin, not even worth the price of a slave. But you go buy her and you bring her back. That's, that's commitment. That's love. That's obedience to God's command. This is like the prodigal son who says, give me, give me my money. I'm going to go off. And, and at the end of the story, he's spent it in riotous living. And he's now eating with the pigs. And he says, you know, what kind of life is this? So that's where she was. The picture, of course, is that God paid to bring Israel back. God paid the, the price for her sin. And, of course, in doing that, paying the price for her sin, he paid the price for you and me, too. So you have in Isaiah 53 about that suffering Messiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He paid that price for us at Calvary. 1 John 2, 2 says, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So when Jesus died for his own people, he died for us all. When he died for Israel, he died for us Gentiles as well. And so uh, he's paying his price for Israel too. We see that. So you see a love displayed, and you see a price paid to bring her back. And then it's interesting, this time waited in verse 3. I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. Because you will see those same two words in verse 4 pretty easily, many days. You will stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, another man, of course. Thus, I will also be toward you. So I'm bringing you back, but it's going to be tough for a while. This is, these are my rules. This is what this is, what is going to happen. So uh, many days means uh, seclusion. Uh, we're not even going to live as man and wife, but you're not going to go wandering off either. Secondly, uh, you're not going to play the harlot or, or have someone else. You're going to prove your commitment to me, and you're going to do it without any idols or without your lovers. And then, so too will I be to you. In other words, Hosea says, and I'm going to have hands off on you too. So kind of direct and straight language here about what's going on between the two of them. But what is it? We're going to find real quickly that it's a picture of God with Israel. And as strange as these kind of house rules may have been between Hosea and Gomer, God told him to do this because we're going to see he's doing that with Israel also. But you know what? Um, it's a picture, again, of a husband, a spouse, going beyond what is even biblically required and doing it out of love. You, you've got to give it to Hosea for be, being this kind of man and, and I, I, I'm saying he's, he's the leader of his house. He knows what he's doing. He's a prophet of God. But God is asking him to do the hardest things that a husband would have to do in these kind of circumstances. And he's doing it. And he's doing it because God asked him to. So we see the commands here, the, the picture, I say, of Hosea and Gomer. Secondly, let's think a little bit about verses 4 and 5. And I call that the reality, then, of God and Israel. 
So verse 4 says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Then a key word, afterward, the children of Israel shall return, seek the Lord their God and David their king, and fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So now it has to be that way. Dr. Ironside again, because he was a good dispensationalist, I like to quote him. Dr. Ironside said, in these two verses, four and five, we have succinctly set forth their whole state for this entire dispensation, meaning the one that we're in right now, as also the future blessing that is to be theirs in the day of the kingdom when it is displayed in power and glory. Dr. Feinberg, also uh, a good premillennialist, noted the same things. So what you see here is Israel today. You see her prophesied in her future, and this is what's going to happen to her. So many days without these things. How long has it been to today, 2023, that Israel has been without a king, without a prince, and basically without uh, God uh, being there in their midst? 2,000 years? 2,400 years, if you go back to these captivities, they haven't had a king in Israel since then, since the Babylonian captivity. They haven't had a prince. Uh, they haven't really had even the blessings of God on them for this long. It's been a long time, but many days, right? You bring her back and you keep her here many days, I'm going to bring Israel back, and I'm going to keep them many days before I bless them again. That's the idea. Now, in verse 4, you have the, this list of things there. So the many days, by the way, again, uh, the many days is uh, the time, you might say, between the 60th or 69th and 70th week of Daniel. The 69th week ended in the life of Christ, and now we're waiting for the 70th week to come. It's been 2,000 years. You're going to wait a long time, Israel, before I come and bless you. So that's what's going on right now. But notice, you will be without. There's three things uh, mentioned here in, in uh, 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 twos together. King or prince. And again, they haven't had a king or a prince since then. You know when they will have a king and a prince again? When Jesus Christ is their king reigning in Jerusalem, and David is their prince, according to Ezekiel's prophecy. David is their prince, is there in that kingdom as well. And they haven't had a king or a prince. Oh, they have prime ministers, and they have you know, people who have called themselves kings from time to time, but nothing in, the, in a biblical way. And so they're, they're going to be without king and prince. And then it mentions sacred pillars and teraphim. Those are the idols. The sacred pillars are those things that they set up in those groves where they worship Baal and Asherah. They were filthy-looking things. They set these things up, these sacred pillars, to worship them. And the teraphim, are the, uh, they define those as house gods or household gods. Uh, you know, kind of like Achan stole out of, out of Jericho. These household gods are little individual gods you could have in your house. God detested all of these. And here... Israel had gone after these things, and what God has said is, uh, you're not going to have these either. Just like Gomer 
was not going to have any of her uh, companions the whole time. She's going to be set aside. Is it kind of unique that even to this day, Israel uh, is not an idolatrous country, is not an idolatrous people? And it, the Jews themselves shun uh, idols, and they always have. You'll be without these things for this long. And then the ephod and the sacrifice refer to the priest who wears the ephod and the temple, which, of course, is where they had to do sacrifice. So they have not had a temple. There's been no sacrifice since the, the captivity began and the, and the, and the uh, temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They, they've not had any since then. And so you'll not have these things all of this time. Daniel 9.26 in his prophecies said, after the 62 weeks, that is after Jesus has come and all of that has happened, Messiah will be cut off, the people of the prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary, the end of it shall be with a flood, till the end of the war desolations are determined. And all of this time we're waiting for the Lord to return and bless Israel, desolations are determined upon them. And of course, that's what will happen. In the midst, Israel's being proved. Israel's being proved by God. And I say proved in the sense that they've gone through great tribulation as God's people. And we know how the Jews have been persecuted throughout the years, throughout the 2,000 years. And basically, just as Hosea was leaving Gomer alone, God has left Israel alone. Now, you know that I believe that Israel is God's people, and God will come back and restore the kingdom to Israel again. But basically, you've never seen God go out to war with Israel. You've not seen the miracles happen to Israel like it happened in the Old Testament and will happen in the kingdom of God. God has basically let Israel be like every other nation in the world. I've also said that uh, I think Genesis 12, 1 is still in effect. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. But basically, Israel is in a pretty tough situation and always has been until Jesus comes back. I'll tell you three things that have not happened, and, and as, as we believe that these verses will take place, we're looking at a premillennial picture here in these two verses, and that is Israel will last for a long time without any help and without all of these things, but in the end, verse 5, afterwards, I'm going to come back and establish her. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to come back and, and make Israel into a kingdom of Gideon. There's an old view called British Israelism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term. Uh, you could also say American Israelism, and that, that is a, a view uh, that the tribes of Israel are gone and can never be regathered, never be known again. And so uh, there were those who believed that the British Empire was actually Israel restored, that the lost tribes became the British uh, and the, and the British uh, Empire. And there are people who have believed that about America, too, that we are the restored Israel that God has blessed rather than the actual Israel. Neither of those are true. Today, there's a replacement theology, it's called, and that is, well, Israel's gone, but now the church has become Israel. In other words, you and I, who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, we are the new Israel. Replacement theology means the church has replaced Israel. 
And so that'll never happen for them. It'll never be in Israel again, and Jesus will not reign over Jerusalem anymore. He reigns in the church from heaven. And then there's all of the allegorization and the, and the pictures and the, and the things that make uh, the promises to Israel out to be some fairy tale, allegorization, poetry, whatever, but they'll never happen literally. Now, when we read a verse like verse 5, even verse 4, which says many days, and it's happening to Israel now, but afterward and in the latter days, Jesus will return and he will bless Israel and he will reign over Israel and Israel will be God's people. But they won't be that way and they won't be the number one nation on the earth until Jesus returns. They're still in that many days waiting period. So notice this word afterward. It, it becomes an important word in the, in the scriptures. Let me read you two of those. Isaiah in his prophecy in chapter 126 said, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city after all these things. In other words, Joel 2.28 it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. In other words, afterward, God will come back and the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon Israel again and they will be God's people once again. I want you to notice three words uh, in this uh, verse 5. Seek or return, excuse me, and then seek, and then fear. So afterward, the children of Israel shall return. They will come back with, with singing and with joy upon their heads. They will return. Look at, again at chapter 6 and verse 1 here in the book that we're reading. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn. He will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And we have that great prophecy. Chapter 14, verse 7, uh, if you could turn all the way over there, says, Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be reviewed like grain, re, excuse me, revived like grain, and grow like the vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. They shall return. Zechariah 10, 9 said it this way, I will sow them among the peoples, Jezreel, I'll sow them among the peoples, and they shall remember me in far countries. They shall live, gather with their children, and they shall return. Common theme. So the, the Jews are going to return to their land when Jesus returns. I know Jews have gone back to Israel now, and sometimes you have a wave of them going back, sometimes not. That's not the fulfillment of these prophecies. These prophecies have to happen when this waiting period is done and Jesus returns and brings them back. He will, he will whistle for them. He will give the shepherds call for them, and they will come back. And secondly, they will seek him when they do. So again, I read chapter 5, verse 15. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will diligently seek me. That is when this time comes. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 said, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, 
Behold, he is coming, saith the Lord of hosts. So he will come, he will gather them, they will seek him, and then lastly, they will fear him. Malachi 4.2 again. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. And Isaiah 59, 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. And so they will fear him in that day. And so you have here these, these simple statements that there's going to be a waiting time, and Israel is going to have to go through a long time of waiting before I bless Israel again. Just like Hosea said to Gomer, there's going to be a waiting time, and you're going to have to go through it, then I will bless you again. And that's what he's saying here. And it will happen in the latter days. One more verse from Malachi 4.1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow into it. I, I love the, the last eight chapters of Ezekiel 40 through 48 when it's a picture of when Jesus returns and builds the new millennial temple where Jerusalem is now. And, he, and the valleys are filled and the mountains are brought low and some are cast into the sea and a plain is created at the top of the mountain and on that plain, the new Jerusalem, uh, not the one from heaven, but the, the, the new temple, I should say, in Jerusalem will be built there. And, and all of Israel will return and every tribe will have their own land again. Jesus will be there on the throne. David will be there. And all the resurrected uh, Jewish Old Testament saints will be there. You and I will be there in the kingdom of God doing other things for the Lord. All of that happens uh, in these latter days afterward when Jesus returns. And, and, of course, the wonderful thing for Israel is they will finally be God's people again, the number one people. Their, their children will be like the stars of heaven like the sand of the seashore, uh, and they will be the greatest nation on the earth, and Jesus will be there with them. It's, it's quite a day coming when you think about it. So in the interim, Hosea, well, he's asked to do a hard thing. Sometimes we're asked to do hard things. We're asked to trust God to do the things he asks us to do, whether with our families, whether with our children, whether with evangelism, whether, you know, with our spiritual lives, whatever. God asks us to do some pretty tough things. He, Hosea did it because he had faith in God. And whatever God's asking me to do must be the right thing. However hard that is, I'm going to do that. And God has a purpose in it. God is weaving his, his quilt to look like he wants it to look uh, and you're just one thread in the quilt. So go in the right place and, and do the right thing. And that's what he's doing. God is waiting to restore his people Israel. He will restore them. They will be his, his uh, select, elect people uh, in the end times. And you and I as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the bride of Christ, uh, we'll be the bride. We'll be the royal family. We'll be living and reigning, ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Good days are coming, folks. Uh, no matter what happens to this country or any country in the world, in this century or the next, 
until Jesus comes won't affect what God is going to do on this earth when he returns. Great day is coming. All right, stand with me if you will, and let's sing a song and uh, thank the Lord for what we've read and heard tonight. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the, the Word of God and these wonderful passages that we have in Scripture, and I pray, Father, that you'd encourage our hearts by it. In this world in which we live with its sin and its idolatry, it, and we probably put Israel to shame uh, by the sins committed in our own country. Oh, Father, I pray, uh, we pray for the day that you will return and your kingdom will be set up and all ends of the earth will fear you. So, Father, uh, we wait for that day. Show us your will in our lives now. Help us to do it. We'll thank you for all of these things and your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us.